Could you please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 15? And uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. And uh, we do thank you that uh, we can be very confident that what we have uh, recorded before us uh, is direct uh, revelation from you. Uh, this is what you want us to know. And uh, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand uh, what's recorded uh, in this uh, portion of scripture. Help us to see uh, what it teaches us uh, about yourself and how that ought to uh, impact our lives. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. If we were to conduct a survey of what people are concerned about when it comes to the future, there would be a diverse range of answers. No doubt common concerns in our society would include the destruction of the environment, uh, global warming, wars, economic collapse, pandemics, terrorism, crime, political unrest, poverty. These would be some of the common causes of anxiety as mankind ponders what the future may hold. But what is truly frightening about the future is not any of those things. What should stop the heart of sinners is what God is going to do. God's unleashing of his judgmental wrath is a terrifying reality that looms just over the horizon of human history. God's wrath, his anger, his righteous judgment are qualities that have fallen on hard times. People don't like to think about God in that way. His love, his grace, his mercy is far more palatable. Viewing God as your friend and your father is far more comforting. And yet, if God's wrath is not a reality, if God is not angry at sin, if God doesn't deal with sin, please understand he is not a God worth worshipping. Because that would mean he is accepting and tolerant of wickedness and he wouldn't execute justice. Now, throughout the Bible we see that God has poured out his wrath in judgment on sinners. Adam's sin brought the whole human race under judgments. God sent a worldwide flood as cataclysmic judgment for the gross and pervasive wickedness throughout the world in the times of Noah. Sodom and Gomorrah were consumed by fire. Egypt was torn apart by the plagues. Both the northern and southern kingdom went into captivity. That was God's punishment for long-standing unfaithfulness. God's wrath and judgment are common themes throughout the prophets. And don't buy into the deceptive delusion that this is just the God of the Old Testament. My friend, God hasn't changed. God doesn't change. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they were struck dead. That's New Testament. John chapter 3 verse 36 teaches that the wrath of God abideth on all who don't believe on the Son. The wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ at the cross. And the book of Revelation is full of God's wrath being unleashed. 
So God's wrath is a theme that's found right throughout the scriptures. From the Garden of Eden to the final unleashing of his eschatological wrath. And the historical outpourings of God's wrath fall into several categories. One theologian provides these three. And this is in your outline. Number one is what's called sowing and reaping wrath. So people sin and they suffer the logical consequences of that sin. That's one category. The second category is what's called cataclysmic wrath. When God sends massive destructive judgments. And that judgment may engulf the whole world. So think of Noah's flood. Or it could be a smaller region. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the third category is eternal wrath. So God's eschatological wrath that will in the future be poured out on the whole world. And the ultimate result of this eternal wrath will be the sentencing of all unrepentant sinners to hell forever. And Revelation chapters 15 and 16 present the specific phenomena of the final outpouring of God's wrath before the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, they, they contain the unleashing of the seven bowl or vile judgments. This is the third set of judgments that we have come across. There have been the seven seal judgments, the seven trumpets. And if you remember the seventh, each time contains the next set of judgments. So the seventh seal contained the seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet contained the seven bowl judgments. And, and there is this spiraling and intensifying nature in these judgments. And understand that they have all come from God. That these are not just some chance things. These are direct from the hand of the Lord. Notice in verse 1. Okay, these are called the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And what this means is that the preceding seal and trumpet judgments. They were also expressions of God's wrath. But these seven identified in verse 1 these will be the last okay the greek word is eschatos from where we get eschatology so this is the culmination of the unleashing of god's wrath now chapter 16 contains the actual unleashing of the seven bowl judgments and that's terrifying whereas chapter 15 what we're considering tonight functions as a prelude Okay, we can think of chapter 15 of like the pregame show getting us ready for the grand final. And here we learn that there is glory in God's wrath. So not only will God pour out his righteous and holy wrath, but this is something that magnifies and glorifies the Lord. This is something that makes him worthy of worship. That's the message of this chapter. God's wrath makes him worthy of worship. I wonder if that's how you think about God's wrath. Now this chapter commences with a vision. In fact, it actually contains two visions, with the second one commencing in verse 5. But the first vision is seen from verse 1. It says, I saw another sign in heaven another sign looks back and connects this to chapter 12 and verse 1 
And both of these visions in chapter 15 form a prelude to the unleashing of the seven bowl judgments. And these two visions in this chapter, that's going to form our outline for tonight. Vision one, vision two, so very simple. As we consider the glory and worship that ought to be bestowed upon God due to his righteous and holy wrath. So let's consider vision number one, which I've entitled Worshipping Saints. Now, a scene in heaven precedes the unleashing of the bowl judgments, as has happened with the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And chapter 15 is sort of a heavenly interlude to introduce the, the pouring out of the seven bowl judgments of wrath in chapter 16. Now, this first vision is described as great and marvelous. And this is the only time in the New Testament that these two words are used together. And this stresses the significance of what's about to unfold. Okay, the idea is, you haven't seen anything yet. Okay, what's about to occur is next level. And we're introduced to seven angels. And these seven angels have the seven last plagues. Our scholars believe this is a new group of angels that we haven't yet met. And they are God's agents of judgment. It's interesting that in Leviticus 26 verse 21, it says, And if ye walk contrary unto me, and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. And these seven last plagues are God's judgment on a disobedient and rebellious world. A world that has forsaken the real Christ and embraced the Antichrist. A world that has spurned many opportunities to embrace the gospel. But having rejecting it, doomsday was now coming fast. The final plagues were about to be unleashed. And these plagues that these angels have in their possession, we're told they're filled up with the wrath of God. This term filled up is the same Greek word that Jesus cried out from the cross when he said, it is finished. Okay, it's just one Greek word. And this gives us a clue that the tribulation period is drawing to a close. And these judgments will usher in the return of King Jesus. And this word always ca also carries the idea of reaching an end okay, or an aim. And what this tells us is that this wrath has an eternal purpose. And this is really important for us to grasp when we think about God's judgment and God's wrath. It's part of the plan. Okay? It's not God just unleashing out of frustration. This is not some spur-of-the-moment decision, like, whoa, things are getting out of hand, what am I going to do? Okay, God, God here, in the tribulation, is not having some temper tantrum. This is not some abusive outburst. He isn't out of control, but rather this is all part of the plan. And this is important to understand when it comes to grasping the wrath of God. His wrath is not uncontrolled like ours so often is. He's not some unleashed lunatic. It's not some trigger-happy temper, 
but rather it is a holy, righteous, pure, just, and necessary response to wickedness, rebellion, and unrighteousness. And this text anticipates the completion of the Lord's tribulation, wrath. But before the angels are deployed on their divine judgment mission, John sees several other things, and he begins to describe them in verse 2. He mentions here a sea of glass mingled with fire. This sea of glass is likely the one we've encountered previously. It's not an actual sea, but it's a transparent crystal platform before God's throne. And it shimmers and it glistens like a tranquil sunlit sea. And this is an, an emblem or, or a picture of his majesty and holiness. But here there's a new detail. There's something different. We're told it's mingled with fire. This speaks of wrath. This speaks of divine judgment that proceeds out of God's holiness. And standing on this sea of glass mingled with fire was a group that had gotten victory over the beast. Who, who is this group? Well, they are those who, ha, who, will, who will be martyred by the Antichrist. Those who endured the, the terrors of the tribulation. Those who experienced the, the most intense persecution the world will ever know, and yet they persevered. They didn't forsake the faith. That they didn't yield to the blasphemous demands of the spirit. They didn't bow the knee. That they didn't take the mark of the beast. Okay, and notice that they stand in victory over the beast. Isn't that interesting? The Antichrist had killed them. And yet we're told that they're not the losers. They're the victors. And that's true of every martyr throughout history. They're not the loser. They're the victor. And this group here, now they stand before the throne of God and we're told they have harps. So that they're given what is a privileged position. And this is a reward for refusing to worship the beasts. And they're involved in the heavenly harmony of the chorus of the redeemed. Then we read about two different songs that have been sung. Uh, some believe it's just one song with two titles, but the fact that there are two definite articles in the Greek text, I believe, indicates that this is two different songs, although the theme of the songs are very similar. Now, these heavenly harmonies of praise are identified as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. When it comes to identifying the song of the Lamb, it's almost unanimous consensus that this speaks of the song recorded in Revelation chapter 5. Okay, verse 9 in Revelation 5, it says they sung a new song, and this was unto the Lamb. But there isn't as much certainty when it comes to the song of Moses. And there are two main views. Some believe it's the song recorded in Exodus 15. And this song was sung by Moses and the children of Israel, after their triumph over Pharaoh and his army at the Red Sea. Remember, all the Egyptians are drowned and they burst out in praise. Whereas others believe it refers to a song that's written by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now, I favor the view that it's Exodus 15. 
Because in Deuteronomy 32, that song is actually about Israel's unfaithfulness and then God's punishment because of her unfaithfulness before he eventually brings her back and gives her victory over her enemies. Whereas the song in Exodus 15, this is a song of victory. Okay? It's a song of victory over the enemy. And I think that fits the context much better. Okay, this song here, it's a victorious anthem. And although it's not identical to either of the songs mentioned in Exodus 15 or Revelation 5, it contains similar themes and it ascribes praise to the Lord. And we could say that the central themes of, this, of these songs are God's works, God's ways, and God's worthiness. His works, his ways, and his worthiness. And the focus is on God's character and his function as the judge. Okay, in verse 3, God's omnipotence, justice, righteousness, and sovereignty are fuel for praise. Notice in verse 3, it says, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. So this is God's omnipotence, his stunning power. And this strikes astonishment in mankind. And he has the power to judge. The verse continues, Just and true are your ways. So God manifests his judgment in ways that are just and righteous. Understand, there is nothing unfair about God's wrath. Then the verse says, Thou King of saints. This acknowledges that God is the sovereign king. He's ruling and reigning over all, and hence he has the authority to execute his wrath upon this wicked world. And this verse reminds us that the character of God, and this is the vital point, the character of God demands he unleash his wrath on this wicked world. My friend, understand it would contradict who God is if he did not deal with sin. God would cease to be God if he didn't deal with sin. And in verse 4, a day is coming, and this is looking forward to the millennial reign of Christ. There's a sense of joyful anticipation in this verse. At that point, all people will acknowledge that God's righteous fury, which will have been unleashed, is deserved, righteous, and necessary. So this is the first vision. Where these tribulation saints that have been martyred are worshipping the Lord and glorifying his name as the final stage of judgment is about to be unleashed. So that's the explanation of the first vision. Let's now move into the second vision, which I've entitled the Temple of Doom. Now this second vision is like the players in the dressing room receiving their final instructions from the coach before they go out for the grand final. Or it's like the soldiers receiving the final instructions from the general before they go out to battle. And here the angels, they receive their weapons, they receive their instructions before embarking on their mission. And this particular vision really grabbed John's attention. Okay, we see that in verse 5, it commences, and after that I looked and behold, 
And this particular phrase is used throughout the book to introduce some startling, dramatically new vision. And the idea here is that it it draws his attention away from the redeemed saints who are praising the Lord. It's like, you know, that first vision, that's amazing, that's enthralling, but this second vision is even grander. And he's drawn to the temple of the tabernacle. Okay, this speaks of the heavenly tabernacle. Okay, the tabernacle on earth that Israel had, that was patterned on the heavenly one. And we're told that the tabernacle in heaven, it was open. The veil is drawn back. And here when it speaks of testimony, this likely refers to the Ark of the Covenant, which contains the Ten Commandments. And we're told that these seven angels in verse 6, they come out of the heavenly temple and they each have a plague. And they are the divine special force. Okay, that they've been entrusted to unleash this final campaign. They have their assigned duty to judge sinners. And the fact that the veil is open and they come out of the tabernacle, what this tells us is that God is the source of the plagues that they have in their possession. These judgments that will be poured out stem from the holiness of God. God's holiness demands that sin is judged. Okay, this is required. This is necessary. Because God must do what is right. And as these angels make their way out of the heavenly temple with the divine weapon of judgment in their possession, John describes their attire in verse 6. He says, clothed in pure and white linen and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. Okay, this clothing, the, the point of this description is a vivid reminder that God's judgment is holy. God's judgment is perfectly pure, it's righteous, it's just. Okay, understand God is not some vigilante who stoops down to the level of criminals to overcome them. God's judgment isn't a case of lowering himself to Satan's level, but rather as the pure white linen indicates, it's perfectly just. This is what God's holiness demands. This is righteous. This is pure. When we think of God's wrath, when we think of his judgments, we need to remember it's in harmony with his other attributes. God cannot contradict who he is. If he contradicts who he is, he ceases to be God. And the attire of this angelic judgment force, it's a graphic illustration of this important reality. Now in verse 7, it describes... The loading of the judgment weapons, if you like. Okay, one of the four beasts gave unto the angels a golden vial. And when we read here of vials, okay, these vials are broad, flat bowls or saucers. Okay, and the content of such shallow bowls are quickly, easily and completely poured out. So the imagery here, it's not that of a stream that's gradually poured out of a large jug, but rather the whole contents of the shallow saucer is being like hurled down in an instant flood of judgment. 
That's the idea. And these golden vials, verse 7, they are full of the wrath of God. This word full addresses the comprehensive, complete, and totally devastating character of this final set of judgments. And again, the text is very clear. This comes from God. It's his wrath that they are full of his hot anger. And as all of this is unfolding, as these angelic beings make their way out of the temple with their weapons loaded, ready to unleash. Okay, as John sees this, suddenly in verse 8, the temple is filled with smoke of the glory of God and no one's able to enter. Now, smoke was an emblem of majesty and symbolized God's glorious presence throughout the Old Testament. As one writer says, smoke is frequently associated with God's glory and power. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he passed through the divided pieces of the sacrifice in the smoking furnace. When Moses received God's law at Mount Sinai, God revealed his holiness with fire and smoke. As Israel placed the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, God's presence was symbolized with smoke and fire. In Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled the holy place in the form of a cloud. This is an ongoing reminder of God's holiness. God's glory is always manifested during the time of his judgment. So this vision is very clear that God's judgment, God's wrath, is something that glorifies him. It's not to be ignored. It's not to be shunned. This isn't some blight on God's character. It's not something that God is shy about acknowledging. In fact, God is glorious because he will judge. This is part of the reason why he's glorious. Okay, his name. Now here when it speaks of his name, it's talking about who he is, what he has done and what he will do. Okay, his name is worthy of worship. And that includes his judgment. That includes his wrath. In fact, this is part of what makes his name worthy. In fact, without it, if God doesn't judge, if there's no wrath, God would not be worthy. But because of who he is, it demands that God unleash his wrath in judgment. And this is part of what makes him worthy of worship. So these two visions that function as a prelude, they prepare us for the final judgment of the tribulation period. We learn here the angels are summoned, they're equipped, they're ready to be unleashed as God's agents of judgment. And the next chapter, which we will consider in a couple of weeks, documents the unleashing of the seven bowl judgments and this is unlike anything ever before witnessed scary stuff and this cataclysmic judgment will usher in the return of king jesus but for tonight what is there for us to learn from this prelude okay what does it teach us about god's wrath and the fact that this makes him worthy of worship well number one 
It reveals reasons why God's wrath is good and necessary. Okay, do you believe that God's wrathful judgment is a good and necessary thing? Is it good? Is it necessary? Most people feel a little bit uncomfortable when they start thinking about it. In fact, some would be incredibly hostile by the claim that God's wrath is good and necessary. It's not uncommon to view this as a character flaw rather than something that makes God glorious and majestic. But here are four reasons why God's wrath is actually good news and why it's an inescapable reality. Reason number one is vengeance of the saints. God's people have been mistreated throughout most of history. Persecution in varying forms has been the common experience. What's the biblical ethic? The biblical ethic is vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And this necessitates that God will judge. His righteous fury will be unleashed in order to avenge the mistreatment of his people. This is why this vision includes the martyred saints. Their appearance makes the point that God sends his wrath as an act of vengeance on those who mistreat his people. And this is actually an answer to prayers prayed in previous chapters. The saints were praying out, how long, O Lord, when will you avenge us? It'll happen. God will right wrongs. He will deal with those who mistreat his people. And this is the first reason why his wrath is both good and necessary. The second reason is his character. God's character demands that he judge. God would contradict who he is if he failed to deal with sin. It would contradict his holiness. It would contradict his righteousness. It would contradict his justice. And we're reminded of this in the text. The song that is sung reflects on the character of God. And because of who he is, it demands that he judge sin. God cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. He can't ignore it. If God ignores sin, if God's indifferent toward it, he wouldn't be true to his nature. God will do what is right. God must do what is right. There's no other option. And this demands that his holy wrath will be unleashed. Justice must be served. God would cease to be God if he did not execute judgment. The third reason is the defeat of Satan. God needs to unleash his wrath in order to defeat the devil. This is the context of our text. If you remember the previous two chapters, uh, Satan is seeking to establish his counterfeit kingdom with his counterfeit Christ. And people follow that. And the Lord needs to judge in order to overcome the wicked one. If God refused to judge, then the wicked one would win. Wouldn't that be a horrible end to the story? Satan's kingdom would be established on earth, and hence this is why it's both good and necessary for our God to be one who will judge, who will unleash his wrath, because that will assure Satan's final defeat. 
And then reason number four, it's part of the plan. It's God's plan to unleash his wrath on this wicked world. He's always purposed to judge sinners and destroy sin. This is not some afterthought. It's not as though God has been forced to do this. It's not like he's been backed into a corner and he thinks, well, what should I do now? Rather, this this is always the intention. And we see this from our text. Our text is telling us what's going to happen in the future. And this is all part of God's plan. It's God's plan to judge wickedness and destroy sin. And that is why it's necessary that he unleashes his wrath. It's required to defeat sin. And my friend, this is why God's wrath is not something to be ignored or to be explained away. It's not some character flaw that we should hide with the makeup of love, grace, and mercy. But rather, it's good. It's necessary for God to judge. It's required for him to deal with sin. And this is good because it ensures that wrongs will be made right. Justice that is often lacking in this world will be served. Sin, wickedness, and the devil will be defeated. God will destroy and completely eradicate sin from this world. That is why it's good and necessary. Our God is the judge of the earth and he will do what is right. But there is some even greater news. Yes, God is the judge. Yes, he will unleash his wrath. He will deal with sin. But but here's the paradox. God is busily working to save sinners from his own wrath. Isn't that wonderful? God's nature. It includes not only righteousness and holiness, but also grace and mercy. And even during this devastating judgments of the tribulation period, God will call sinners to salvation. Okay, we've seen that. His evangelistic endeavors go into overdrive, and that reveals the heart of God. Yes, he will judge sin, but he desires for sinners to be saved from his wrath. So, my friend, please understand that as natural men, we're standing under the wrath of God. We're sinners by nature, by birth. We're sinners by choice. And God's wrath is hanging over our heads. The bucket is filling up. It's it's starting to tilt. And this will be unleashed ultimately in hell forever and ever and this is what we all deserve understand that's just that's right because we have sinned against an eternal god that demands an eternal punishment but the good news is that the lord jesus christ on the cross he had the wrath of god unleashed on him he was not a sinner Jesus never sinned, 
But on the cross, he took your sin and my sin upon himself. And he was punished in our place. God the Father unleashed his holy wrath upon God the Son. And that has made it possible for you and I to be saved from the wrath of God. If, If we believe on Jesus Christ, if we cry out to him for salvation, we will be saved. But my friend, please understand this. This is what the Bible says, John 3, 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's very good news. The verse continues, please hear this. He that believeth not the Son. Okay, so there's the issue. Believing the Son, not believing the Son. Shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the wrath of God is hanging over your head. And at death, it will be unleashed. My friend, come to Christ. Allow Jesus Christ to endure the wrath of God in your place. But if not, the wrath of God will be unleashed upon you in hell for all eternity. So the wrath of God, it's good, it's necessary, and the good news is that the Lord has provided a way for all to be saved from it. That's the first lesson. The second lesson and the final lesson is what I've called the response to God's wrath. Often God's wrath is viewed with great disdain. People view it as an ugly mark on an otherwise beautiful picture. It's the skeleton in God's closet. It's the embarrassing member of the family that everyone wants to hide. It's the one thing that people feel can't be true about God. How can God judge? How can God unleash Wrath, and there's been all kinds of attempts to sugarcoat it. But I want you to notice the reaction in our text. This, this is heaven's reaction. They're full of praise for God. His wrath is part of what makes him worthy of worship. God's wrath, the fact that he is the judge and will deal with sin, this is part of what makes him so glorious. This is not something to be ashamed about. It's not something to hide, but it's something that ought to fill us with awe for our Lord and it ought to stoke our worship. This is part of what makes our God so glorious. The fact that our God will do what is right. He will execute justice in a very unjust world. All wrongs, all injustices will be made right. Sin and wickedness will be dealt with. Sin will be completely eradicated from this world. Its invasion is not permanent. Our God will defeat sin and Satan. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. And my friend, that is to be a source of praise and worship for us. That that was the response in heaven. 
and it ought to be a source of praise and worship on earth. My friend, God is glorious and worthy of worship, and a part of the reason for that is that he will unleash his wrath, he will judge, he will execute perfect justice. And although that can make people feel very uncomfortable, it's actually really good news, because imagine an eternity with sin not defeated, Imagine an eternity with no justice. Imagine if God never dealt with sin. Imagine if Satan was never defeated. That's a horrible existence. But God will do what is right. He will judge all sin and he will completely eradicate it. God's the judge. He will unleash his wrath. He will deal with sin and wickedness. And that is part of the reason why our God is so great. And that is why our God is worthy of all praise and adoration. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you uh, and praise you for who you are. And Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who will do what is right. You will uh, execute justice. You will deal with sin. You will deal with Satan. But Lord, thank you most of all that you have provided a way for us to be spared from your wrath. Uh, we, we don't deserve that. We deserve your wrath. We, we deserve eternity in hell. That's the reality. But in Christ, we've been miraculously saved from that. And we do thank you and praise you so much for that. You are, you are a great God. And I, I do pray that would be stamped on our heart and impact how we live our lives. To pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite Mark and